Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. This episode is produced in cooperation with Independent Art Fair New York City. It will be part of the Fair's 2023 OVR. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 75, recorded February 27, 2023. My guest today is Jessica Stoller. She's an artist working in an elaborate way with porcelain, ceramics, clay, which she often displays in overwhelming installations and tableaus. Jessica will be exhibiting with PPOW at this year's Independent Art Fair. Hi, Jessica. Very happy to have you. Hi, Daniela. Thanks so much for having me. Your work, as far as I could look at it, mm -hmm. is really exciting, overwhelming, manifold, and so many other things that came to my mind. And to understand more about where this abundance comes from, and before we go really deeper into the work, I would like to go back in time and ask you about your upbringing, your background, and how you decided that you will live as an artist. What were the influences? Sure. Um, you know, thinking back about my trajectory or my relationship with art growing up, it wasn't with capital A art per se. It was more with the lure and power of making and using my hands. Like kids do. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I was thinking about this in preparation for our conversation. And I think as adults, we're kind of pushed away from that, our kind of intrinsic interest in material. And and I think, you know, as a child, I really gravitated towards making. I also am my only child. And I think also that kind of sets you up. It kind mm -hmm. of gives you a good beginning point. You know, as an artist, you spend copious amounts of time by yourself, you know, with your own thoughts. So I think as the only child, too, I was very comfortable being by myself and kind of having an internal world. And I think also the power of beautiful objects was kind of instilled in me. My mother and grandmother both worked at a, for a period at um, an auction house in Detroit. I grew up in Metro Detroit. So I grew up around old objects, interesting objects, kind of like deck arts in, in different capacities. Did you fantasize about them, where they come from or how they were made or stuff? Or did you try to copy them? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think as a child, not so much, but definitely in, you know, artworks as an adult, um, I definitely still do riff on all sorts of different historical ceramic pieces. But yeah, I think all of that just kind of gave me a strong appreciation towards objects, towards beauty, towards ornateness. You know, my paternal grandmother was also a very good seamstress. So we would make clothes and work from patterns. So it was kind of the craft side of things. The making was natural to you. Yeah, yeah. And I think growing up in suburbia, where everything is predetermined and kind of standardized, I saw art in this way of making and thinking with my hands as the real refuge. As an escape. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. And 
Was that something which was very internal, so it was like a really rich internal life? Or did you also, I wouldn't say rebel, but did you kind of like, yes, flee from suburbia also on the outside? Yes. I mean, I think all of those, all of those things. I got really interested in ceramics in high school. Mm. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, which was, you know, very intense, but also good. <laughs> good in a way. I mean, nothing is ever simple, but, you know, good in that it was like very empowering. How was it empowering? Because it was all female? I mean, they never used it to my mind. They never used the language of feminism explicitly, but it was like women can make a difference. It, it mm -hmm. was empowering and it was a pretty diverse school. Um, you know, Metro De Detroit is a diverse place, but there's like so many neighborhood cities around the country. There's just pockets where it's a very specific group of people, very homogenized. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the school was pretty diverse. Although it was Catholic school, we had Muslim students, you know, students of different economic backgrounds. But I think also because it was all girls, it was also very intense. Another positive was we had a very good art program looking back and we had actual working artists. So that was really also uh, like a beacon To me, just seeing that, oh my gosh, you can be a creative person in the mm -hmm. world and, and there is another way. So I really gravitated towards working in clay, you know, really saw my teachers at that time as people, careers, lives to aspire to. So, you know, it was not without its complications, but I don't think anything is totally good or <laughs> totally bad. No, but there were the hints and you just followed them. And yeah. then you decided really to dedicate your life to that. You, was that that you consciously said, I want to be an artist? I think so. And even ceramics artists, I gravitated really strongly to clay in high school. And it was really A refuge is I, you know, we would have this giant cafeteria that I found pretty overwhelming. <laughs> um, and so I would just spend a lot of time in the ceramic studio, you know, like any person that gets drawn into clay to trying to figure out how to throw. And, you know, it's just mm -hmm. kind of endless time that you can dedicate towards learning the technique and craft the material. You really went into the craft. Yeah, I mean, I think I did. And it was also also just kind of a way to, again, hone this interest of, of making and working with my hands. And, and yeah, just a, a space where I could not feel so overwhelmed by the dynamics <laughs> of adolescence and the school. <laughs> That is so interesting, but you, because your work then turned out to be itself so overwhelming, yes. you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, yes. that's kind of like almost like a, a contradiction. It's like you, you create something which is, which is pretty a lot. Intense. I mean, I know. And, <laughs> yes, no, it's true. And I think that's also why I love ceramics because it is so contradictory I think also one other facet of my like way of seeing the world or something that was part of my upbringing that I think really had a stamp on I'm, I'm trying to think of a better way to say it but I grew up Catholic so you know going to church and and I think just the imagery of Catholicism yeah <laughs> you understand all the angels and and the holy people and the saints yes and it there's like extreme beauty but then also like 
body horror and, and terror violence, and violence. Yeah. yes and and how all of these things can kind of co-mingle together I was just in Madrid uh -huh. at the Prado and oh, looking yeah. at Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights. Sure, yes, yes. And I don't know if you've ever seen it in real, but I was wondering. Yes. It comes from Christianity, but also from a kind of like storytelling of Christianity, but it also is almost like science fiction or it's completely, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, really. But yeah. I had to think a little bit on what you're doing. So is this the imagery you you find inspiration in in terms of Bosch specifically or like this kind of yeah this kind of although I would say yes yeah, also Bosch yeah 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 I mean I think for many years I have been really interested in the grotesque and not the grotesque as like pejorative that we kind of use it in common in our language now I think the grotesque in terms of the art historical notion of the grotesque, thinking back to Nero's caves where images of like humans and plants and different decorative impulses, like all of these things kind of commingle. There's not a quote unquote like rational order, like people are here and plants are here and <laughs> animals are here. And, and so I really am drawn to the grotesque um, just as a way to kind of create images. I'm interested in, you know, hybridity, irregularity, openness, change, access to, I guess. And I think for me, all of those notions really tie to the body, the female body, my body specifically. And I think as humans, we have this really faulty notion that we're separate from the world, that our bodies are not like this very porous, open kind of container. And so I'm interested in that as it relates to the female body, my body, kind of our relationship to the world. And I think also in terms of art history, I think of myself kind of pushing back against a very classical body, female body that is contained, that's very poised. And I think in that way, it's easier to control this hybridity, openness, excess, like that is much more amorphous and destable and, and less easy to control. So I think all of those things are interesting. And yeah, they have different reference points and different moments in art history, both, you know, painting and sculpture and decorative arts as well. And so, yeah, I look at all sorts of images. Yeah, you look at all of this and the thoughts you, you just mentioned. I was wondering if these are all the thoughts you think beforehand. I have to read something to you. I'm just reading a book by a guy named Rick Rubin uh -huh. about creating and creativity. And he says, turning something from an idea into reality can make it seem smaller because it changes from unearthly to earthly. The imagination has no limits. The physical world does. But the work exists in both. Clay as a material has its own way to react. And I was wondering, how are the making and the conceiving interrelated in your work? You were talking about that the making with your own hands was so fascinating, but you can conceive the image before and through drawings. You didn't say that, but I read it. <laughs> but I imagine that in the process of making, something happens which is not to be preconceived or which is not a thought process. Yes. Yeah, I think it's true. It's I'm definitely more of a planning person. I think clay is so 
sensuous, <laughs> for lack of a mm-hmm. better word, like you just touch it and it feels great. And, you know, I think there's many artists that work in a very intuitive way. I think for me, I'm quite scripted. I will come up with the image and, and the image will be what is compelling to me. And I think also because I'm working in like a mid-range porcelain, I have to really execute in somewhat mm-hmm. of a swift manner because the clay is drying and it's inherently prone to cracking and warping. So if I, yeah, if I'm just taking a lot of time to deliberate on even what the form is, the form is potentially falling apart and, and cracking and not working. So I do have to really strategize what it is. But that is in terms of the sculpting. But I think in terms of color and how things develop, that is definitely more based on response. I do different kind of color studies and versions where I figure out what I want the color to be. And I glaze all of the work, but I don't use colored glazes for the most part. I China paint everything, which is an over-glaze process where I paint and fire and paint and fire. And so I build up the color very gradually. So it is that process is more intuitive. So, you know, there's so many different stages. The clay is always changing. But yeah, I think for me to start, I've got to kind of be really into the idea and just like wanting to see this image or form materialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a combination of pretty strict, not strict, but pretty specific kind of execution idea. And then also like a, a blend of intuition to let things develop because sometimes something cracks or changes or warps a bit or you have to add more parts or... <laughs> It's always kind of a dance and you have to stay somewhat flexible. (laughs) Yeah. And what do the images have to have you feel drawn to the ones you want to realize? I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try and listen to things that connect to my areas of interest, whether it's books on ecofeminism or I've been really interested in anatomy or anatomy in terms of the female body, like all of the things that we have failed to understand, or just kind of the sexist language of how we name parts of our female anatomy. So it it can be very different, disparate things. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's fiction, maybe it's something more scientific. And yeah, I think I'm always kind of building on this interest in the body and ideas of ornamentation, art history. There's definitely always a theme of memento mori, kind of still life imagery, but how I can also make that my own, whether it's, you know, showing my own gray hair or thinking about aging and and the porousness Mm. and vulnerability of the body. So like how I can think about still life imagery, but kind of change it in terms of ephemerality. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating because I know these porcelain figures because my grandma collected some of them. Sure, yeah. But they were showing, as you also, I think, mentioned in an interview, like sort of like a very restricted, idealized idea of the feminine body. Yeah. And it was all like very pretty, but also very encaged. Yeah. And when looking at your work on the first glance, it's also, it's beautiful and it's full of color in all these forms. And then 
you look at it and you recognize breasts and nipples and vulva-like <laughs> yes. forms and all of that. And also the memento mori. Yeah. And I thought like, oh, wow, it's sort of like luring you in yeah. with its beauty. And then suddenly it's slapping you into the face with something completely different. Yes, yes. I think I'm very interested in those impulses of attraction and repulsion. And I think clay just inherently does that, or I'm able to use it well to kind of do those things. And I like that all of these different textures or forms can be at an equal playing field. Like I am, I'm presenting all of it to you. I'm not saying the cellulite is different than the rose mm. or the the slug is different than the, I don't know, whatever, fill in, fill in the word. It's all kind of equal. And I think that's also what I'm interested in, how we very specifically label certain things or deem them bad or unacceptable or have such tight boxes. And I like just blurring all of that and kind of putting everything on equal footing. But yes, I think always the colors and glaze surfaces are intrinsically very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did it take you to find your language? Mm. I think it's a, it's a very special one. And when it comes to clay and ceramics, there's also so many things around which are like more forky, or some of them are just usable things. Some of them are very rough, you know, but but yours has a very, very specific language. How did you develop that language? Yeah, I mean, I've always worked in clay, but I think that took me a while to get to like the content with the form and kind of the ideal surface. And I think my impulses have always been pretty maximalist. <laughs> And, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that working grad school, I turned my studio into this bedroom for this bizarre fictional character I created. And I made the wallpaper and I made all of these other odd objects. It was kind of a still life, but the work has changed, obviously, as I've grown older. But excess color, I think this impulse towards attraction and repulsion, all of that. And also that it's figuration. It's, that yes. it's, you know, a lot of ceramics is abstract. Yes, figuration. I think feminist, like having this feminist vantage point. Earlier work, I was thinking a lot about kind of the commodification of girlhood culture and all of the objects that are sold to young girls as I was a younger woman <laughs> at that time. So just thinking about the inherent vanity and materialism. So I think like this interest in objects, what they mean, kind of this feminist vantage point, it's always been there, but my focus has shifted over time. Did you even become more feminist? With getting um, older and also after the past two, three years? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to me to think about like a younger generation mm -hmm. and their relationship to feminism and of course our very troubling and chaotic world. But I think for me, growing up, there was a lot of feminist, like the school I went to, or even my mom, but like no one ever used that language explicitly because it was still the 90s and had this negative connotation. So I feel like now maybe things have been co-opted in terms of it's like mass appeal, but of course the sentiment of equality is so important. And now it's just part of language, part of popular culture in a way that I think it really wasn't when I was younger. 
So yeah, of course, it's hard not to be even more intense about those beliefs. But I also feel like for a younger generation, it's a much better world. It's not a taboo to say those things anymore <laughs> for your mom or dad. And <laughs> Yeah. And also, I read about you that you organized when you were younger and you're still doing it a crit group of female artists and a book club to stay in touch <laughs> and to have people. Yeah. Well, I think it's great actually to stay in touch and to exchange yeah. with each other after having studies when you set out as a single artist, because usually you, you, you don't have anybody anymore yes. to talk about, to exchange. You grow with other people. Yes. You know, you, it's like growing alone is really, really hard. Yeah. And at the same time, you're also sharing a working living space with your man, yes. Sam and Chow. Uh -huh. And how do those different proximities and exchanges, how do they, these influence your work? Not so much, I think, from the image side, but from the making side. Yeah. I mean, uh, first to speak of the Crick Group, that has been tremendously important for me. It was something my friend started after we finished graduate school, which was 2006. And, you know, it was a way for us to just, as you were saying, kind of keep in conversation and especially being in New York and, you know, navigating how to earn a living and making good sense of everything. It, it was hard. And, you know, as I've had more experiences and opportunities, you know, it's the group has grown really organically. And it's actually many of the kind of core people are several women that also show with PPOW. So that has also been really interesting. And it's just, for me, it's been really important. Also, many of them are painters. So I think it's just great that diversity of voices made me think about color in different ways. And a lot of us are also working figuratively, although not everyone, but a lot of themes are shared or interests are shared and we can bounce off ideas and also just see other artists work grow because things change and risks are taken. And <laughs> so it's just really, I think, powerful to be kind of a cheerleader yeah it's empowering it's like what you said at school yeah. it's like empowering to be together with those people yeah so i feel so lucky to be the unofficial secretary <laughs> ringleader <laughs> of that and in terms of living with my partner simon it's great i think we moved somewhat recently and before we had you know a work live space in both scenarios but before we kind of had a large room and he was very nice and kind of let me take over now we're kind of in the same building but different floors so we're not quite as on top of each other as we used to be but i always ask him for color like look at this what do you think you know like hot takes and it's really invaluable to have another set of very discerning eyes <laughs> to mm -hmm. kind of give me feedback and I think similarly to the Crick group it's just like a shared creative history of supporting each other and sometimes you just need someone to say you can do it it's going to be fine <laughs> yeah so how does your day look like do you work every day or Do you have certain days where you just do research? How does that work in your life? Yeah, I work pretty much every day doing something in the studio. You know, oftentimes ceramics, there's a lot of 
different cycles, like maybe you're firing this day or these are drying. So, so you have your own kiln. Yes. I'm, yeah, I have mm -hmm. two kilns. So I'm always kind of moving things through. I have multiple things happening. These are getting bisque. These are getting glazed. You know, I'm figuring out this other thing. So things are always moving through at different stages. And yeah, I'm working often and I do listen to audiobooks or, you know, try and take in information when I'm just sitting there working for many hours. Mm -hmm. And I also teach at Pratt in Brooklyn in their ceramics department. So I'm doing that during the week as well. And that is really great. And that I get to interact with students, share my love of the material and its history. And yeah, so I, I really enjoy kind of also getting out of my studio and interacting <laughs> with people and talking. And yeah, so that's kind of what the week consists of. Mm -hmm. And what are you planning for the presentation with PPOW at Independent? Is that kind of like different in producing for more like an art fair setting instead of a show? Or do you just approach it the same way? For the Independent, it's just kind of a conversation with the gallery. We think your work would make sense with this other painter. So it will be a two-person booth. And it's just kind of a conversation of what is available, what is finished. I'm also working towards my next show, uh, which will be next year. So it's just kind of strategizing what pieces make sense for this context. You know, the works that we have solidified for presenting our kind of works that are dealing with the body and age. And again, these notions of hybridity and transformation, and then also some more recent works, you know, thinking about everything that happened with Roe and the restrictions on abortion. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, it's horrible, but also not surprising when you think about this long history of kind of control over female bodies. Absolutely. And the kind of inherent misogyny. So I'm hearkening back to kind of motifs and images of different periods. So trying to create some kind of historical context. And I often think of my body as kind of a site of oppression historically, but also resistance. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to kind of thread this needle and, you know, thinking more current research, thinking about wise women, right? Those were the women that were the midwives using different herbal abortifacents to, you know, terminate pregnancies. Like all of these things have been happening for so long, but I think in my research, it's been interesting to think about which trials, those wise women being exterminated, for lack of a better word, and then kind of the field of obstetrics, pushing women out, becoming male-dominated, mm -hmm. you know, all of these different things, I think, have helped to bury this kind of intrinsic knowledge. And so, yeah, I'm thinking about lots of different things. And I think some of the forms that I will be showing kind of speak to that. Yeah, I hope that's really jumping in their faces because yeah. I really see that like the more authoritarian a country becomes, yeah. the more misogynistic it also becomes. Yes. It's almost like this goes in hand in hand. You can't yeah. have an oppressive yeah. culture without obviously hating women. Yeah. That's kind of like the storytelling all over the world we I see. Know, and it's yeah. it's very scary that it comes to democratic countries as well. Yes. Back, like a big backlash. So so I think, yes, as an artist uh, and as, as a woman, yeah. we all have to 
react in our ways and what, what, what we can do best. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's still like whether it's women in Iran or what is happening mm -hmm. in the U.S. or all of the violence or new laws being lobbed against trans people. I mean, mm -hmm. it's all still this kind of control. And I think also for me in other pieces, not necessarily works for independent, but I'm thinking about how this kind of like plundering and control is also extended to the environment and the natural world. Right. And mm -hmm. And so I think, um, I don't know, hopefully we can write the course, but at least to, for me, kind of creating this string to connect these different moments, it helps me understand where we are today, because of course, there's such a historical continuum. <laughs> And at the same time, it's still that those pieces, they might have all those harshness in them mm. and still they have, I mean, real beauty can be also very harsh yes. because yeah. you were talking about the decorative moment, mm -hmm. but I think very often it's a misunderstanding between beauty, which which can be almost scary mm. and decoration. Mm -hmm. Beauty can be hurtfully beautiful and decoration yeah. is decoration. Yeah. So what's your stance on that using those things to create your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm always interested in intrinsically attracted to the things that we feminize and then devalue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think like ornamentation, decoration definitely has been one. We have said it's feminine, it's superfluous, it's not rational. And so we devalued it. And so for me, I am very, the more is more. There's a very good book. It's this art historian critic, Naomi Shore. It's called like The Power of Detail. And basically, I think I'm saying that right, but basically she talks about from art historical frame, how the female body, different philosophers have kind of tied it to nature and nature being unruly and... Mm -hmm. And has to be controlled. Has to be controlled. And I think detail and ornamentation as a similar impulse it does not stay in the grid it does not stay in its very controlled frame it breaks the frame and so it's negating this very controlled rational order right rational in air quotes <laughs> and so i think i'm always interested in using the decorative to kind of speak to those ends and so yeah i think what you're saying right something can be like horrific and really beautiful at the same time and i think it's again those interests in not simplifying things like letting them exist with their contradictions and their complexity but yeah there's a lot of interesting thinking about the decorative and yeah i think it's just another way that we devalue whether it's different craft techniques or different i could go on but No, everything that is considered to be feminine, like sewing yes. or knitting, all of these things first were devalued. Yeah. And then they came probably back in one way or the other. Yeah. Because society also shifted, but in like serious art, yeah. like in the Bauhaus, the men, they were allowed to study painting mm -hmm. and the women, they had to study like knitting. Yeah. You know, and then they created great pieces of art with it. Whatever you gave them, you know, they created yes, great yes. pieces of art. You, so you yes. can't control that creative impulse yes, yeah. in women. You yeah. can't. Uh, definitely. It, it's always tried yeah. to control it. Yeah. When I look at a lot of works that are made right now, which are in different mediums, but they speak of this kind of like breaking the grid, yeah. actually breaking the control. Yeah. 
you know, and I'm another generation. So it sometimes really goes against my, uh, let's say, taste. Yes. Yeah. And I think like, oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's awful. And it looks like, oh, it's not. I can't see that. And then I think like, oh, that's so interesting. Probably we, I also have to reevaluate what it means. Yeah, taste. Yeah. Taste. Yeah. And I think about that too. You don't kind of realize how, yeah, you create these very, I don't know, like the way you absorb these hierarchies of material mm -hmm. or images. And yeah, I think a lot of my work, I'm trying to question that or destabilize it or put unlikely things together and you know contemporary art right now there's so many the schisms right the very dated conversations about art and craft there's just so much work that is unabashedly tactile and handmade and i think you know employing these different quote-unquote craft techniques and it's just another kind of knowledge to me you know versus like the knowledge of painting and, and mixing color I'm glad that things are now on a more even playing field, for sure. <laughs> But your work, do you feel kind of like vulnerable with it or does it rather provide you strength? Thinking of the independent, it's great to be showing alongside of large paintings. I think there's always this conversation about scale and that work has to be of a certain scale to be powerful and I I'm always trying to think about that what my relationship to scale is and I think when I first started working in the city I didn't have a very big studio not that I have a giant studio now but I wanted to take these really elaborate kind of worlds I was building and how could I distill that into like a singular piece and and make a work that was very impactful but on a very small scale and so in another way, thinking about these ideas of ornamentation or the body, having a, a small, fragile work, beautiful work, how can that push against notions too? And clay, it's very paradoxical. Like clay is very strong. Parts of the sculptures are so strong, but then all of the little filigree moments where parts are kind of hanging off or very thin all of that is really fragile so it you know in a singular piece it can be really strong but then parts can be very fragile it's also like not one specific thing it's like us we are strong and fragile at the same time yeah <laughs> same time. exactly yes, yes. so exactly. if you would have to give an advice now to to yourself as a young woman when you started all of that what would what would that be yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh um What would that be? That's a good question. There's different sides to it. There's just the financials, like the logistics of how do you handle student loans and, and pay your bills and have health care and like cover costs. And then how do you feed your creativity? So I think it's it's all part of a life, but they're very different ways. Or maybe some people could intertwine them more succinctly, but you know. I think it's easy to have that creative side, be able to flourish and, and grow if you're not so stressed about money. So I think I worked in a post-production company for many years and like did different small teaching jobs, like working in the education department at this museum or doing a workshop here or there. So I did all sorts of different things to being an artist assistant to to kind of gain experience and make things work. But I think you have to 
cover both sides. And I think you also really just have to trust yourself. It's like this fine line of really being stubborn and headstrong, but also not so stubborn and headstrong that you're not in conversation and and listening to other Mm -hmm. people's feedback. So maybe like anything, it's just kind of a dance. But I think also having a community is, is really important. And I'm lucky with my partner, with my crit group, all of those things have really helped sustain me over the years. It's just a lot of work. <laughs> I think um, you just have to find the balance, find the pleasure. And that is really important. Keeping that level of curiosity and just want to get back into the studio. And I can see, you know, as I get older, like years and years and years, Sometimes, especially living through the pandemic, there hasn't been moments where I just want to keep staying in bed <laughs> and not and not deal with the world. But yeah, I think making my work has been a way for me also to process what it is to be a person living in the world and in this moment as well. Thank you so much, Jessica. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This was a special Voices on Art episode created in collaboration with Independent Art Fair New York. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the platform of your choice, on our website van-on.net, and in the Independent OVR at independenthq.com. Follow Independent Art Fair on Instagram at independent underscore HQ and the podcast at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>